I want to read this just more or less sets the stage for what we're going to be speaking about. Simply says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. You may be seated. We'll be dealing with the first few chapters of Hebrews tonight, but I think we should take really notice of the 16th, 17th verse of the one we just read. A lot of things that Scripture is given for. First of all, we need to notice that it's given by inspiration of God. I mean, it wasn't a bunch of fishermen just got a hold of something and wrote down whatever they so desired. It's an inspirational book recorded under the inspiration of God, and Scripture is profitable. We need to recognize that Scripture is profitable. Profitable, he rounds it up in four things, really, for doctrine. It's important that we have a doctrine, the doctrine of Christ, of course. And Scripture is important for reproof. And it's necessary for correction. Amen? Now, we major on the doctrine part, don't we? I mean, profitable for that, and we really major on that. But reproof or correction... And then Scripture is for instruction in righteousness. Now, that's for reasons. That's that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works, having the necessary equipment to produce good works. So we're going to deal with a few chapters or a few verses in the sixth chapter of Hebrews tonight. Your best to take our time and try to get you out at a convenient time. First off, the first verse says, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on into perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. It's important that we connect this with what's already been said, a lot's been said concerning maturity and mature understanding of God's Word concerning the priestly order after Melchizedek and several other things that he spoke of which you can glean for yourself without taking some time. But he picks up at the 11th or 12th verse or 11th verse and says, of whom? That's Melchizedek he's talking about. That we've had many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing you're dull of hearing. In other words, there's a lot of things concerning this priesthood that the Apostle Paul would like to have said which would be pertinent to their spiritual life, but they would be hard to be uttered if he could utter them all, seeing that you are dull of hearing. Now, you've got to bear in mind that he's talking to Christians. So actually, he set the stage there for us to recognize that as Christians, there are places and times when we become dull of hearing. We ought to make it a major in our lives to always sharpen the hearing, spiritual hearing of our lives to be able to hear what the Spirit saith into the churches. 
And then it tells us what happens when we become dull of hearing. It says, for when for the time you ought to, you ought to be teachers. You have need that one teach you again, now notice that word again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of meat, of milk, and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. As it goes on to say, but strong meat belongeth to them that are full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Now that eliminates the full age part as someone that has a hoary head or someone that's been in the way, so to speak, for several years as being the only one that can discern uh, spiritual things. It says those by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So you say there is necessity not only to know, but also by reason of use. Using the senses that God has given us causes us to be experienced in discerning both good and evil. And then he says, therefore, and we've said it often, when you see the word therefore, you need to find out what it's there for. And so, therefore, he says, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on into perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Well, I look at some of those words that's there leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ. Doesn't mean to forget them. Doesn't mean that they're not important. Doesn't mean that at all. It simply means leaving them. Kindly as a tree leaves its roots and yet never lets its roots go, becoming more and more dependent upon its roots as it grows. So you get a root on this thing, something that sprouts out, and this tree begins to grow and it leaves its roots, but yet it still holds on to them and still becomes more dependent upon its roots. The bigger the tree gets, the more dependent it is upon the roots and the stability of the roots. And the Bible is telling us that what we receive in the early part of our Christian experience is important. That's fundamental principles. That's doctrine. That's something that places us on the right track. But the Apostle Paul is telling these Hebrews here, and actually he's wrapping it up in a nutshell. He's saying, in essence, there's no standing still in God. There is no standing still in God. Uh, this thought underlies this whole chapter that we have here. To enter into God's kingdom means to move with God. Amen? It simply means, actually, it's trying to say to stand still actually is to fall away. And so what we're going to do is dig around some of our roots tonight and see how far we have dared to venture past the fundamental principles of the doctrine of Christ. I'm not ashamed or afraid to say that fundamental principles actually are repentance, baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and receiving the power of the Holy Ghost with the initiative to live a holy life. That's principles, that's basics. That's things that we actually know about 
and receive the minute that we come into the kingdom of God. But Paul is telling the Hebrews, and I think he's telling us, that we have to leave these things in a sense. We have to grow out from these things and grow up in God. He challenged the Hebrews as to the fact that when they should be teachers in these areas, not just teachers of the fundamental principle, but teachers of the deep things that surge in the spirit of God Almighty himself, and golden grains and nuggets of truth that are hidden in the Word of God for those who are mature to dig in and unravel and present to humanity a lost and dying world. And a life so stabilized and so solidified that the powers of hell cannot shake it from its roots. Our roots are important. A basic foundation is important. And it says, let us go on into perfection. That word there simply means maturity. A maturity of growth. Sad to say, there's a lot of individuals that's been in the house of God for years that still eat pablum. They choke to death on a good steak. They can't chew it. They haven't developed any spiritual teeth and still have a craving to live forever in their lives on a milk substance or a milk diet. And the Bible tells us that this is not maturity. In other words, Paul was screaming out what I feel like the Bible is screaming out loud and clear tonight, that we're entering into a phase of God's power and a phase of God's kingdom that is going to take spiritual maturity and insight to be able to stand in these last evil days. What we was able to handle in the days gone by and what was good enough for us to stand on them has to have a complete unraveling and revelation of God's divine presence and God's divine spirit in our life to be able to mobilize what we have in our life and immobilize the powers of hell that's coming in everywhere we look and taking captive people at their own will and their own lusts and desires. Not laying again the foundation of repentance. Those are trying to say as a scholar leaves the letter of the alphabet. When a little kid is real young, they learn their ABCs. I mean, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, B, W, X, Y, Z, and their letters, and they learned them. See, I didn't know mine, all right? Hadn't been all that long ago at all, and I still know them. But we learned them. That's the first order of business. That's the fundamental principles of the alphabet. But later we learn to put them to use. We learn to mobilize their power, and thereby we have word power. It's not just a bunch of letters mixed up, but we learn how to form words and utilize the power that's in the word. That's the same way it is with the fundamental principles of the doctrine of Christ and what we have in him. We learn to mobilize that power. We learn to move in it and use the power that God has given us. Use the power for what? To dance high? to jump over seats, to roll in the altar, to speak in tongues, to shout. That's good. You ought to do that. But you use that power to solidify your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. To be able to stand when the powers of hell is every place and the world is on fire and water's rushing around our soul. To be able to stand and say, God, I still belong to you. I'm still yours and sink our teeth into what the Bible says concerning a mature Christian. 
that Lot laying again the foundation of repentance. In other words, he's trying to say the foundation has been laid. Paul, I think, said no other foundation can no man lay except that which is laid. Perfection, what is that? Maturity. What do you mean when you talk about maturity? Well, I think we need to be mature in love. What do you think of it? You think there's room for advancement in our Christian experience as individuals as well as the church? Don't you think there's room for an advancement, a maturity in love, to be able to reach out and love the unlovable, to be able to reach out and rub shoulders with the unwanted, to be able to kneel our knees down in an altar prayer and cry out for somebody we've never saw, for the powers from hell as they begin to take their effect upon individuals. I hope I'm not called a traitor. But when I saw the havoc that was created in lives that was lost in Libya, when I saw that and knew it was the work of hell, I knew probably that something had to be done, but inside something cried out, God, innocent individuals are suffering because of a madman. God, somewhere, somehow, bring this world into the glorious kingdom of God for a thousand years of peace and erase the misery from the face of the earth. But you see, sometimes our heart fails to be touched and we fail to love, mature love, and I think I've said this before, mature love reaches out. When we're a child, we naturally love our parents, I suppose, but we're eye-centered as children. Amen? I mean, basically, you watch a child that has a toy, and they're selfish at a certain age. They simply will not share that with anybody else. They're eye-centered. They're me-centered. Now then, it might be good if we look in a mirror sometimes and see if we're not me-centered. I mean, see, if something doesn't go my way and something doesn't happen to enthuse me, how enthused am I of it, see? But after a while, they begin to enlarge their love. Their capacity to reach out enlarges. And finally, it embraces their siblings. And eventually, it embraces their peers. And then it eventually, it embraces a family, aunts and uncles and what have you. They're able to understand this. They're introduced to this, and they're able to love them. And then after a while, they're able to reach out. Well, God's children are the same way. Now, you can't demand of a, of a, a child that comes in that's just born into the kingdom of God, and we try to jerk them up by the hair of the head and make them mature. They're going to be centered on themselves, their salvation, their abilities. Where they need to be in God is going to take preeminence over everything else. And then eventually they reach out to those that's close to them. And finally, full maturity enables us to reach out to every soul that is lost and in darkness and pray a prayer and actually care for them regardless of who they are. That's mature love. And the Bible tells us to seek for that. And then a mature knowledge. You know, we're so steeped in our tradition. Pentecostals are probably the most traditionalized individuals that I know of, and it's good to talk about our own. We have our ideas and opinions that's been handed to us from Clark's commentary, from Matthew Henry, and from all of these commentaries, and we feast sometimes on dead men's brains, what's been brought down to us, and we refuse to give our bones up. 
We refuse to believe that God has something more to say in this hour of enlightenment than he's ever said in the past history of the church world. And we have stymied the work of God because we refuse to grow in maturity. Because we refuse to accept the revelations that God has for us. Listen, the early church didn't have everything. A church that was born in the 1900s didn't have everything. And friend, we're far from having everything tonight. But there is a new way. There is a new mighty move of God's Spirit that's surging through life, that's trying to tell us to grow up and get on our knees and seek for a lost and dying world. And each to me maturity of knowledge, seeking what does the Bible say? We've said this often in kidding. We used to have an elderly gentleman. I think I've said it Sunday night and often. Used to have an elderly gentleman in the church when we first went to the church at Rosie Claire. The only man there was there had a certain seat that he sat in. God help anybody if they got in his seat. I mean, we had some visitors to come in and he'd ask them to move. Said, that's his seat. All right? See how traditional life, I'm not saying he was a bad man. He was a good man. He had a, a lot of wisdom to him. And he had a lot of traditions too. Things that just stuck that he thought was right. And that he just simply had no Bible to back them up. Somebody just told him that. Or he gleaned it from what he, what he had to say. And I challenged him and kid him good naturedly a while. And I told him one time, what scripture do you find that in? And he searched for it and he didn't find it. I'd come to him again. I said, you ever find what you're talking about? And uh, I said, you know, the Bible says, he said, I don't care what the Bible says. I've always believed it like this. And I said, he just spoke something that a lot of people think and never have the power to say in their lives. Because actually they turn it off and say, I don't care what the Bible says. My belief, my tradition, my ideas has been this. And their ears have become dull to God's hearing. And their knowledge has been limited. A limit of knowledge. Paul is screaming out, be mature in knowledge and be mature in experience. Hallelujah, in experience. Oh man, I hate experience. Because <laughs> it's a hard teacher, all right? But it's a good one. And the more experienced we are in things, did you realize that God don't let the devil, the devil's not responsible for everything that happens in our life. Is that all right? He's not responsible for it. God allows a lot of things to happen in our life, to create experience in our life, to mature us in this experience. I like to say, God help us. How are we going to tell somebody we know how they feel when we have never experienced anything in our lives? And so God knows what the world is coming to. God knows the unrest that's coming. God knows the heartache. God knows the stress. God knows the frustration that is entering into an individual's life. And he knows that. And he knows somewhere down the line, somebody has got to have an answer for that. And that somebody is his people, his church. And so he sends them down the pathway of heartaches, the path of hard knocks, the times of frustration when we shake ourselves and wonder, is there a God and what am I doing here? Times of grief and times of misery and times when we just utterly want to throw up our hands and say, I don't know all about it. That's experience. That's the way we learn to lean hard on God. 
That's when we get up and get a hold of his hand and say, God, lead me through this darkness. And he does. Hallelujah. That's, that's maturity in experience and maturity in Christian conduct. To not just testify like a Christian, but to live like one. Okay? <laughs> and that takes some growing up. You see, when we was a child, we just reacted like that. Paul says that himself. But when we become a man, he said, I put away foolish things. Things that didn't amount to anything. A lot of times immaturity strikes out quick. Yes, it does. I mean, somebody wrongs us, but immaturity strikes out fast. All right? Chris, that's, that's not Christian conduct. But maturity makes us hold our tongue, bite our lips, focus our attention on God Almighty, and say, God, allow me to say nothing. That would hinder a life in any way. And to live that life, not talk it, but live that life. Maturity in Christian conduct, and then a foundation. It looks like he's saying, let us not lay again a foundation, and he is, a repentance. But a foundation, that's as a builder, leaves his foundation. Now there's carpenters and builders here and you have a foundation God help us if we ever try to build a building without one all right and God help us not only that that to see what type of soil that we're placing it on all right because we might get uh, the effect like we've uh, got a little bit in other places kind of a sinking effect <laughs> after it's on there all right and what's what type of soil, how we prepare it to build it, then lay the foundation. It's important. There's nothing any more important than a foundation. But you don't just build a foundation, grab your rocking chair, go sit on that foundation, and invite everybody to look at the house that you're dwelling in. God help us. All you're doing is sitting on a foundation. And there's a lot of Christians, Holy Ghost still, Jesus' name, one God, individuals, have simply had a foundation, basically truth, and they've not laid one rock on that foundation since they've laid it. And yet they've invited the world to look at their spiritual house. And they haven't built nothing. We've majored upon a foundation. That's all right. And it says leaving those principles, out going out from them, as you build on that foundation block by lock, block and stone by stone, Story by story, you're always leaving that foundation, but you're always more dependent on it than ever before. Hallelujah. The more mature you get, the more you leave it, the more you grow, the more you are uh, settled upon that fact that you need that foundation. A spiritual life and a spiritual building is of no value unless it's put on a right foundation. And then it says, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, and of faith toward God. Repentance. Sometimes I wonder, in our day and age, what repentance really is. I've searched lives, I've watched lives. No tears in eyes anymore. 
and no godly sorrow doesn't appear. We stand straight and tall and just more or less say offhand, God forgive me, has no meaning inside of it at all. We need some real genuine, old-fashioned repentance that lays hold of the horns of the altar and stays there until a life is drastically changed and turned around. Where we don't do the things that we used to do and turn around from the things of this world and despise those things. But repentance simply means turning from sin and turning to God. Then it goes on in the second verse of the, of our, that verse, faith toward God. That's an inward experience. And then it says, leave, in other words, the doctrine of baptisms. All right, we've finished that. Now, whether that's plural, some, some commentators say that that's an error, that it's not plural. Others say baptism simply means John's baptism and uh, baptism in, in Jesus' name. Others say it's baptism in the Holy Ghost as well as baptism in water. But whatever it is, it's telling us to leave those. Don't be, be, just be baptized over and over and over again. Realize what he's done. Whenever you went buried, was buried in his name, you took on the family name. You was in the family of God. That's a seal set on you. And you should never have to do it again. And it says, leave that. And of laying on of hands, that's basic principles. In other words, impart, impartion of the gifts, laying on of hands as far as healing is concerned and all of that. He's trying to say, don't major on those things. Let them be a part of what you do, but don't major on those things. You see what's created a havoc. I was just talking to a minister a uh, little bit uh, yesterday morning, and this minister was telling of a man that came into the city of Evansville, and everybody thought he was a prophet. And he came in and he held a revival at one place for I don't know how many weeks. He told people what was in their lives. They bought it. Somebody said, well, if he told the truth, was he not a prophet? The Bible warns you concerning that. The Bible tells you that they can say things, and it is true, but that doesn't mark them as a prophet. In other words, humanity is running after everything. We said it Sunday morning. I'm going to say it again. The signs that are follow them that believe, not believers, follow the signs. Some way let us get established in God's Word. Then it's urgent. When the Apostle Paul wrote this, those words dropped from his pen with solemnness and with urgency and challenged the heart of humanity to awaken to the day and age we're living in. And this man came over and went into this church and ended up going into another church, ended up going into another one and literally took every saint that this one individual had and destroyed another church and took half of the saints of another church and went to establish him one when the cloudy came under caught up with him. There were things in his life, things in his life that was literally uh, make you blush. And yet this man portrayed such a spirit. Why was people taken asunder? Why did they believe it? Simply because they was looking for a sign of something. Somebody to point their finger and tell them how good they were or to prophesy on them. Friend, these things are nice and good, but let's leave them in the content of God's Word. Hallelujah. Let's don't take them out and set them over here and major on them. It's a disgrace to God's Word. 
And that's the same way with healing. You can't lift healing out and major on healing. Let's major on the Word and leave those things intact in it. It'll all come out just right. Baptisms, resurrection, and eternal judgment. He tells us all these, all these are basics. They need to be, but we grow from this. And then the third verse says, this will we do if God permit. Now the subject is going on in the perfection. And actually God is actually saying to us, this we will do. We'll go on into perfection as we come into a state that God will permit and advance into maturity. You see, God stands and judges our maturity. He doesn't just judge us as sinners or not sinners. He judges us as to our mature state in Him, as to whether we are able to advance from glory to glory. You know, the Bible says, going from glory to glory, from the glory of one state into the glory of another one. And God sits there ready to judge us as to whether we are able to go into this state of maturity. And he says, this we will do. We'll go into this state of maturity as God permits us to do. And then the solemn warning of Almighty God that touches hearts and sometimes rolls off of us like water on a duck's back. And yet it is so solemn inside there and so to be taken for granted as he pins these words under inspiration and under urgency as it says, for it is impossible. I want you to get that word, it is impossible. Look at that word and sometimes it makes my blood creep. It makes, gives me a new respect for God Almighty. It challenges my lethargy and my apathy in service to him to realize it is important for me to watch my step. I think Brother Tim said it sometimes. We mark what individuals are doing out there and certainly are quick to point out that they're on the road to hell. But what about the commandments God gives us that we deny and turn aside and refuse to believe that God would be that kind of a God. And yet Paul is saying it in here, it is possible for man to get beyond remedy. Nations have got beyond remedy. Babylon was beyond remedy. God could do nothing with it. Egypt beyond remedy. God could do nothing with it. Greece beyond remedy. God could do nothing with it. And Israel of old finally got beyond remedy till God couldn't reach it with a human cry of his prophets. He said, I rose them up early and I sent them forth and they wouldn't listen to what I had to say. And God had to allow this. They were beyond remedy. And also Rome of old and on and on you could go. And there's been cities beyond remedy. Sodom and Gomorrah probably is one of the best advanced that we have that we can show that they were beyond remedy. Nothing could be said to change their attitude. They were walking the same way they had always walked and God said there's nothing to do other than destroy them utterly. Jericho, the seat of worship, and consort Asherah, Baal, got beyond remedy and God said destroy it. Nineveh, the cup was full. Capernaum, indifference and unbelief was his sin. Then there's records of individuals that got beyond remedy. You'll notice Pharaoh wouldn't be humble. The Bible says he'll break the pride of Egypt and it was broken. 
Paul, the first king that we had, pitted his will against God's will. And when he was reproved about it, went his own way until finally the Bible says there was no remedy for him. Judgment and that alone. I think we have to stop long enough to ask ourselves tonight, do we have besetting sins? Do we have sinful, fleshly indulgence that we continue to walk in and wallow in and live in and depend upon the mercy of God to unravel our lust of the flesh and cover it up? Do we have self-seeking pleasures and luxuries that we wallow in? In other words, do we knowingly and willingly and determinedly practice resisting all of God's gracious pleadings and warnings and persuasions through His servants and through His Spirit? Because you see, we're not living really tonight charmed lives. We sit under the same scrutiny of this Word as the Hebrews sit under it. The same scrutiny of God's Word that the Egyptians sat under. The same scrutiny of God's Word that these individuals that rejected Him sat under. We're not a privileged people. We're not somebody that God just raptures up and says, Do what you please, live like you please, deny me, walk your own way, and you're going to make it just fine. We sit and cause pain. I'm going to say it again. The words drop heavenly from his pen with urgency and challenge us our spiritual lives tonight. Reaches down to the centuries of time and alights upon us tonight and challenges us. Paul is not telling these people they had reached that. He was simply telling them there is a possibility that if you don't do what I tell you to do, you will reach this. And he goes on to say, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. Hallelujah. I just stand sometimes and I wonder, God, what would it be like to be beyond the reach of divine correction? I don't want to seem harsh. But there's an urgency stirs inside of me to realize sometimes our hearts becomes unreachable. Our sins become so habitual. Our indulgence of humanistic ways in our life, uh, but we become so insensitive to what God has to say that sometimes I tremble and wonder, have we maybe, maybe got beyond the rod of correction? Have we done it so long and indulged in it so long and excused ourselves so long until God's Word itself cannot correct our lives and correct our hearts? I'm only asking you a question. I'm only doing my best as your pastor to point out to you the possibilities that comes and finally the impossibilities when this time does come. And it has come in life. I think Paul was trying to tell us it was men right then living that had been judged by God and the only thing awaited them simply was the judgment. And he simply says, they tasted. Now if men have insulted God, how do you insult God? <laughs> I think a real good soul searching you can find out that you insulted God. Now, everything that's written here, all scriptures are forest, but they're not to it. And the Apostle Paul actually was directing this to Jewish individuals that had come out from under the law 
out from under the rituals of the law and had accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior and he was directing this at them. Because pressure was being put on them to go back into the ritualistic ways under the law. And Paul was trying to point to them the dangers of doing this. They haven't accepted Jesus Christ. And having watched their fellow servants being slain for the Lord Jesus Christ. And then submit under pressure and go back into the ritualistic thing and deny that Jesus ever had the power to cleanse them by his precious blood. Now we're not, we're not Jews tonight living under the law. But we are individuals that came out of a world that was filled with sadness. And Jesus brought his peace inside. We did come out with heavy burdens on our shoulders of sin, greater than we could bear. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleansed us, and we felt free again. Hallelujah. And then our weaknesses, finally, we received the power of the Holy Ghost, and we had these things in our lives, and they meant something to us. Every day they meant something to us. Every hour they meant something to us. And Paul is trying to tell us as he's trying to tell them when pressure mounts, when evil abounds everywhere, why don't you look to those that have suffered and bled and died? Look to the martyrs that was willing to lay their life on the line and died for that. And don't ever be enticed to lay down the Christ of Calvary and lay down the peace and satisfaction you got when you came to the altar prayer and deny the power that came in your life and you received the baptism of the Holy Ghost, don't ever lay this down and walk out the door and show the world that Christ meant nothing to you. You see, it's a serious matter. And sometimes we condone with a smirk and a smile what happens when a person backslides and we don't realize how close he could be to denying the faith of God. I'm not saying it's impossible to reach. I'm not saying it can't be reached. But I'm trying to point to you the danger of an individual accepting and tasting and knowing God's power and tasting so he was good. And then because somebody looked at them wrong or said the wrong thing, laid it all down and walked out and said, after all, it don't amount to anything. They may not say that with their lips, but they say it with their actions when they walk out and leave Jesus Christ, who's been the only friend they've ever had, and give them the only peace they've ever had, and cleanse them when nobody else could do it. And then they crucify him, in a sense, and from a world of fresh, and put him to open shame. What they're actually saying, he wasn't able to do in my life what he said he would do. Is that too hard? It's too hard. I don't mean for it to be. But actually, that's what has happened. And that's what's happened to a lot of us, even though we still pretend to be Christians, in our moaning and groaning, and in our complainings when God is trying to mature us. And when He walks us down a hard path, if we're not careful, we'll moan and groan and complain, and show the world that God is not the God He said He was, and isn't able to deliver us. Amen? I know it's getting late, but I got up here late, all right? And I've got something to say that needs to be said. Something that needs to be said and lodged way down deep in our heart. Then to realize that there is a chance. There is a chance that we could, our beloved of God, 
salt of the earth, the light of the world, the sons of the living God, that there is a good chance that we could reach beyond divine correction. And this is where it is serious, is when we fail to let the Scriptures correct our lives. It's when we get bohemian and get mad and point the blame on the preacher, the Sunday school, our teachers or whatever, because the rotty correction is laid to us. And friend, when we ever get beyond correction, we're standing on dangerous ground. When we can't allow the love of God, the Scriptures, the power of God to correct us, it could happen to us. I've often said this, the only sin that cancels the cross, the only sin the cross cannot cancel is the sin that cancels the cross. Now, what do you, what do you mean by that? I mean as long as there's willingness in our heart to accept the rod of correction and condemnation and let God reveal these things that's wrong in our life and we fall down in utter repentance, God's going to be there. But the longer we do it, the harder our heart gets until finally we have no repentance in our heart for the sin. And that's the sin the cross can't cancel. It's because it's not repented of. If men have insulted God, counted his blood is not, breathed and quenched the Holy Spirit, what possible remedy is left? In other words, this is a good question. What is left after God has been exhausted? What's left after we exhaust the mercies of God? Scripture's there again in verse 5 and 6, and let's hurry on. It says, tasted. Now that is a carefully chosen word. He didn't just write it out there. He simply picked it out very carefully because they were satisfying themselves with beginning basics. They just kept tasting. They didn't eat. I think the Bible tells us this is honey in the rock. This is meat. This is satisfying. This is his flesh. And he says, eat it. He don't say sip around on it and just taste it. He simply says, eat it. These individuals were just tasting. They didn't eat. And because they didn't eat, they wasn't nourished in Christian faith and Christian principles. And he points out the dangers in, the, in there to those who only taste. He says those who only taste have no strength to resist temptation and have no strength to resist trial. And then he also points out if a man accepts the basics of Christianity, if he just felt the first movings of God's divine spirit, he's crossed over a line. There's not a more miserable person in this world than somebody that's come and found Christ true to their lives and then walked out. He's a marked man. He's not satisfied with the things that God redeemed him of, even though he's back in. And the longer he goes in it, the worse he gets. Because he's seeking to satisfy himself with things that's long since should have been dead in his life. But he's walked out from the graciousness of God. He's walked out from under the umbrella of God. He's walked out refusing maturity. Temptations and trials beset him. And he turns his life right back to the same, same place, same scrap pile of humanity. The same sinking sin and walks back in it and he tries to find satisfaction and it's not there. And he searches someplace else for satisfaction and it's not there. You see, he's not satisfied in the world and he's not satisfied with his position in God. He's of all men most miserable. 
You've got people out here in this world, saints, that's miserable. People that have known God. People that have felt the burden of their sin as it pressed down heavy on them. And they felt the cleansing flow from Calvary. And they felt free. And they felt His power. And His Word tasted good to them. But then pleasures of flesh, desires and temptations and troubles and crowded in with the, what it takes to live in this present world begin to take their toll. And when they should have taken a good bite and sat down to a good meal of the Word of God, they only tasted it. And because of that, they could get no strength. A man cannot go where he was because he's been a new man. He can never be the same person again. You ever notice? I'm sure there's some of us here this Friday. You ever notice that when you go out on God, you're worse than you ever were? You're worse simply because nothing satisfies. There's a restlessness inside here. God isn't giving you what you need. You've left Him. The world can't satisfy it. You're basically, you're on a sea, and you have, have no sail whatsoever. Our carnal relationship with God is not satisfactory. But the Bible tells us in verse 7 and 8, if a man responds to and is nourished by the Word of God, he can, like herbs, will grow and mature. Let's read that part. The earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it, bringeth forth herbs meat for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessings from God. In other words, if we'll drink of the rain from heaven, power and presence of God when it comes in in song service and lift our hands and rejoice in the presence of God. I mean, come in the presence of God and rejoice like a rain shower coming down upon us. Lifting up hands in a barren land realizing that God has sent the rain on desert places and we are privileged people. And we let, let, the, let this rain come down and nourish us and our lives spring forth like herbs. And we are good in the presence of Almighty God. Let's go ahead and read that. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected, and is nigh unto cursing whose end is to be burned. In other words, that's things that spring forth. Go forth just for a season, and then they're barren of any fruit. No life in the branch whatsoever. The Bible says it's good for one thing. That's just good to be burned. Now, whether you realize it or not, he's talking to Christians here. Talking to individuals that accepted the basics. Individuals probably that's coming along as far, maybe farther than the majority of us. And he's pointing out to them the definite possibilities of entanglement in this world that will cause us to fall by the wayside, and then we would be good for nothing other than to be burned. But if a man responds to the Word of God, <laughs> hallelujah, we'll just respond to the Word of God. Just let it do what it's supposed to do. Move out the rebellious spirit of man, the denial that these things could ever happen to us, and realize we are but human, that the powers of hell are far smarter than we are, and the only thing that brings us any salvation and will keep us it's for us to sink our teeth into the divine word of God and grow in that and march out into the world a full, mature child of God. Laying aside all these things and playing churches become alien to us. 
it becomes a part of our life, our spiritual endeavor. The necessity of it is greater than it's ever been in the history of the church. It's to be around God's people, to be under the sound of God's voice, to unravel God's word. It's to sit in our own houses and open up the word of God and read that word of God. Let it become alive to us and let it mean something to us. Did you know the devil has set this generation that you and I are living in at such a fast pace that it's almost utterly impossible for us to sit down every day and get a hold of the Word of God? Did you know that's a trick of the devil? And we need at least a few minutes alone with our God in the Word of God to open it up. It's just a few moments or whatever we need. Let's don't let the devil rob us of every good thing that we possibly have. And then it says, and we'll wind this up, for God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which you have showed toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. In other words, Paul is saying this, everything that you do for God, every good step that you take, everything you suffer to do for him, God is going to remember that. Not only remember the things you're doing now, but remember the things that you have done in the past. Somebody said, I wonder what our lives are going to be like. So Jesus called for us tonight. I think I have but one hope, and one hope alone. I've always said this, and you may disagree with me, but I've always said this, I think that we're going to be held accountable for the sins that we commit after we come to Christ. We're going to face them at the judgment bar of God. We're not facing them as a sinner. We're not facing him as a savior. We're facing him as our judge. And he's not judging us according to salvation, but he's judging us according to our works, what we have done in the flesh. There's been a lot of things that's been wrong in my life. A lot of things that's not been up to par. And I've only asked God this one thing. Master, let my labor of love and let my life in my latter days be so great and the light shine so bright upon it that it will illuminate my life so much that my past mistakes will not be noticeable when I stand before you in the judgment bar of God. God, read a humble heart and let my life be lived in accordance to thy will. Take my life and use it, Master, and set me where you want me and tell me to do the things you want me to do and don't let me kick against it and let me say, God, here am I. Use me to the best of my ability and let my life shine so great that the past mistakes cannot be seen. God alone can just judge me, I don't know. But I think Psalm says in closing, but he being full of compassion forgave their iniquity and destroyed them not, for he remembered. He remembered. <laughs> he remembers, hallelujah. Man might forget. Humanity might forget your labor of love. They may never understand it. They may forget your challenge and your witness to them, but God remembers the times that we went out of our way, that we bended our knee to Him when other things could have took preeminence. And we've actually given our bodies and our life in service to Him. And everybody else forgets it. That God Almighty remembers it and looks down and says, Well done, thy good and faithful servant. He'll always remember. 
man may forget, Psalm says, he hath remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations. And in closing, Psalms 136, 23, who remembered us in our lowest state, for his mercy endureth forever. Verse 12, that you be not slothful. Now that word is spiritually lazy. That's what it means. Spiritually lazy. That you be not spiritually lazy, but follows of them who through faith and patience inherit the promise. In other words, he's saying get your eyes on those that have walked before you. Your example is Jesus. Pass your eyes upon the martyrs, those that suffered, and don't be spiritually lazy. Now that ought to have a connotation probably to every one of us. Because we do have times when we're actually spiritually lazy. As days goes by that we don't utilize our life in him whatsoever. And he says, but follows. What he's trying to say is if you follow them, that has advanced before you, who through faith and patience inherit the promise. If you follow them, there's no place for spiritual laziness in your life. You'll be redeeming the time for the days are evil. Don't you wish I'd get up? 9.30. Hallelujah. I'll tell you what you do. If you want to get out, print it, get me on the floor. Amen. Because I got so much to say, and I have to say it. And I couldn't be, I couldn't be faithful to you if I didn't tell you what God placed on my heart. And I certainly don't like it when I have to be uh, hurried up on some things that's basically important for our life. It could be important to you in your walk tomorrow. And these things might be good to bring to our remembrance that it is that we can just go around patiently, sipping around on God's good things, and never really fully embracing it, and therefore become spiritually anemic. And God only knows that a mature individual can't live off of milk. It takes more than that. You never outgrow your need for it. And when you get to a certain age, you have to have it. And... I guess God's got them. Spiritually departed children. I worked at, in closing at Bowen Center. And that was retarded children's center. And there's all kinds there. And there was basically three reasons why. Some of them inherited it. Others something drastic happened in their life that caused them to be retarded. But I suppose the hardest to ever understand, and the psychologist has not unraveled it yet, is those who simply just refuse to go. Nothing physically, mentally, genetically wrong with them. They just did not want to grow up. And so they didn't. All right? You hear what I'm saying? This could happen to us we find a good place in God and it's comfortable not a lot of responsibility 
somebody else taking care of the ins and outs and somebody else taking care of us, feeding us and seeing that we're clothed and diapered and fed and all of this. And find a comfortable place in Him. And the Spirit of the Lord comes along and says, Now, you've got to take another step. It's time to move out from this stage. And we don't want to. Because out here is responsibility. The hardest time in my life is when I move from a teenager into full responsibility for myself. I enjoyed my life as a teenager. I enjoyed my freedom. Dad and Mom were taking care of me. They was giving me just almost whatever I really needed, not what I wanted. And I had no responsibility whatsoever. But then it came time for me to step out on my own, to take charge of my own life. It was hard to step in. And there's a lot of them that's mentally retarded in homes that simply refuse to grow any further. They just won't. There's a lot of spiritually crippled, mentally retarded children in God's kingdom where God is saying, look, it's time to grow. Somebody's taken care of you all this time. They've made excuses for you. They've took up for you. They've made the way for you. And they've made it easy. But now, it's time for you to take charge of your own life. And to depend on me. And it's scary. And so they sat. Take a comfortable chair. And there they sat. Unable to retain. Unable to comprehend. Unable to know. Setting as a prayer. Or in power of hell. Laughed at. Made fun of. Mocked. Questions that we can't answer that we should. Lives that should be lived. Can't be lived. I want us to stand.